Our reading today is taken from the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 13. And we're going to start reading at verse 8. This is found on page 165 of the New Testament sections of your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. This is the word of the Lord. Right, if you have your Bibles open, and that will be a great help to me, we're turning again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is sometimes said to be the best known and the greatest chapter in the New Testament. But we're getting a lot of shocks as we examine this chapter because we find that far from being a, a beautiful bit of literature and a dreamy purple passage, it's full of hard hitting. So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, I'll read that and then I want to say a word of welcome to newcomers. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. Now we're going to look at that great verse in a moment when everybody's settled down, but I want in these initial moments to welcome you because I think there have been a lot of new people coming this month as well as old friends having to leave us. And I want to assure you of a welcome and to tell you that one of the things we pride ourselves on at St. Helens is keeping to time. This service begins at five past one and always finishes at twenty-five to two. It's exactly half an hour. And I have my watch with me. It actually has been through the washing machine twice this week by mistake, but it's still keeping perfect time. We have lunches afterwards in the men's service, and if you would like a lunch, there is a sandwich lunch that can be booked down here and a soup lunch that can be booked over there, and we'd love you to join with us. There are some left today. Please don't eat your lunch before paying with it. That's the only rule of the road. And then to say we're going on full steam ahead despite the holidays until the end of July and then the partnership is taking over for the month of July. So there's still plenty ahead. 1 Corinthians 13 then. Well now that we've looked at two paragraphs so far, 1 to 3 and 4 to 7. No time to recapitulate these now. They certainly have been an eye-opener, haven't they? I'll try to say something about them again as we summarize in a fortnight's time. Today we come to the third section, which I've marked out as verses 8 to 12, which I have to say is the toughest section so far. So in order to keep the speaker as well as the listener on the rails, I've written out some fairly full notes inside your hymn sheet. 
If you find yourself, despite what I say and despite the notes, completely confused, I won't blame you. All I can say, to use the jargon of today, is hang, on, hang in there, and next week everything will become clear. Verse 13 really couldn't be clearer, and that's where we go next week. Now, a problem in Corinth has been coming into focus in the first two paragraphs, at least one of them. They seem to have been a problem church, but one particular problem has been coming into focus. It is the problem that the Corinthians mistook the now for the then, the now for the then, to which somebody may say, well, thanks very much. That makes it even clearer. However, I think if you will open your notes, you will see what I mean. By the now, which he talks about in verse 12, Paul means this life and this age. He's talking about what we as Christians presently enjoy and experience of the grace of God. By then, in verse 12, he's referring to the next life and the age to come, what we as Christians hope to experience, and know indeed we shall experience when we get to glory. Now, the Corinthians were confusing these two. Uh, for some reason, they believed themselves to be a very superior church, a very heavenly-minded church. They boasted of their knowledge of God, and they boasted that in them heaven had come to earth, and that whereas the experience of most of the other churches around them was very earthy and very natural, theirs was very supernatural and very heavenly. They were mistaking themselves, of course, and they were claiming to enjoy what actually can only be enjoyed in the life of the world to come. However, they had certain proofs of their superiority, certain flags that they weren't unashamed to fly. And Paul pinpoints these in verse 8. The more you get to know this letter and Paul, the more accurate his bombing is. He actually pinpoints the, the places where they boasted. And you'll see the three places in verse 8. They boasted of their prophecy, their tongues, and their knowledge, their gnosis. Now, Paul does not deny these gifts here. He simply says that their boasting of them was in error. For the Corinthians, as I say in my notes, proof of their superiority as a church lay first of all in prophecy, which enabled them, as they understood it, to give heavenly teaching, while everybody else was preparing their sermons, they could speak direct with the voice of heaven. Proof of their superiority lay also in the gift of tongues, which enabled them to offer heavenly worship, where everybody else was scratching around with hymns, ancient and modern, or whatever they had in Corinth in those days. And you remember we saw that in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, they thought God had given them angelic tongues, and therefore they were singing with the tunes of heaven. And then the Corinthians saw their superiority lying in knowledge, that's their particular boast, which enabled them to enjoy heavenly understanding when everybody else had been left behind. Now, if they were right, then everybody had to catch up. And let me tell you that so great is their conceit that they think that their apostle who founded the church needs to catch up. They don't think that he has risen to their standard. So you see, they were making some very boastful claims. What is Paul's answer to these Corinthians in the first century? I think it's very interesting because I don't think these issues are altogether sorted out today. 
Well, in verses 8 to 9, Paul gives a very plain answer when he tells the Corinthians that they have not yet attained perfection. They thought that these gifts mentioned in verse 8 were gifts which showed that they had arrived into the experience of heaven and were marks of spiritual fullness and perfection. Perfection seems to have been a word they liked, or it may have been spiritual fullness, fullness of the spirit. Now what Paul says is not immediately easy to see, but when you see it, it's obvious. What Paul wants to tell them is that these, yes, they are real gifts of God and wonderful gifts of God to the Corinthians, these wonderful gifts that God had given the Corinthians are actually imperfect and will pass away. That they are for the here and now, what I sometimes call the interim between Christ's first and second coming. So let me read these three verses again and you'll find out that the phrase pass away is three times used and the word imperfection is three times used. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So, when we get to the parousia, Christ's coming, when we get to glory, all these things are left behind. So they can't be marks of the heavenly life because heaven doesn't possess them. Incidentally, there are lots of other things we leave behind. We leave behind church buildings. That'll be a relief, won't it? We leave behind Bibles and hymn books. That'll be a relief. It's wonderful to think of all the religious impedimenta that we shall leave behind in glory. We shall need it, of course. These are all things to help us in the interim before we get to glory. But we shan't need them there. No need of choirs and organs and uh, choir masters and all the rest. They'll all be out of business. We shall do it naturally, supernaturally. So he says all these things will pass away. Now he repeats the word imperfect or imperfection three times. He says our knowledge is imperfect, our prophecy is imperfect, and when the perfect comes, that is at the parousia, the coming of Christ, the imperfect will pass away. So far from these gifts being marks of perfection, they are marks of our imperfect state. We have not yet arrived, we have not yet found full salvation. That's what he means in verses 8 to 10. But he has something also to say to them in verse 11, his second point. He says here that the Corinthians have not even attained maturity. I ought to tell you that Paul is always edgy about this idea of attaining perfection. He doesn't think it's possible in this world. But he does think that we ought to attain something in this world as Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we ought to attain is Christian maturity. And in verse 11, he gives his testimony. He says that he himself believes in maturity and putting away childishness. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, I have to say there are some writers who think that this contrast between childhood and maturity is a contrast between this age and the next. I don't know how they come to that conclusion because Paul is saying in every chapter of this letter that the Corinthians are childish in many aspects of their Christian life. Let me make that quite plain to you by asking you to turn back to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Indeed, I only need to read verse 1 of chapter 3 on page 157. But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. 
Well, I don't suppose any of us want to go back to the days when we couldn't have a steak and we were fed on slops. Some of you who have journeyed with me for many years on Tuesday are learning again as grandparents to give your grandchildren slops, and it's very painful, isn't it, that sort of eating, when most of it is outside rather than inside. Now, you see, what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is it's quite time that they grew up and that their whole Christian life was no show-off. We expect children to show off. I was walking down in Poultry, uh, and uh, there was a little girl, a tourist, and a family, and a little girl, a very pretty little girl in a very pretty frock. And uh, she was throwing her frock up and down because it was quite clear she wanted to show off her pants. And alas, all the grown-ups were laughing, of course, because it was very amusing, and she was very pretty. And uh, she was looking round for applause. Now, that is the age when you look round for applause, isn't it? She was about three, I suppose. Actually, her mother hadn't put in on her pants the morning, which made people laugh even more, but that's another story. <laughs> now, what the apostle is saying here, we must come back to the apostle. I don't know what he was thought of those kind of things. What the apostle is saying here is that the Christians here were showing off their gift of tongues by continually using them in the worship assembly instead of trying to build the other Christians up. And you'll find that out in chapter 14. We haven't time to go into that now. So what he is saying about these Corinthians is that still in the stage of showing off, of not growing up. By the way, there are many other signs in the New Testament of not growing up. You'll find one, for example, over a few pages, in 180, page 182, where in verse 14, we have another example of not growing up. He says in verse 14 that we're to grow up as Christians so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men. You see, the arc of this childhood, of adolescence, is I can't make up my mind. One day I'm enthusiastic for that. The next day I've given that up and I'm enthusiastic for this. And I can be swayed by the strongest voice. Whoever is the last person to talk to me, I want to do that. Now, you might read, uh, it's worth buying a copy of the Daily Telegraph today, and you will find the new religious correspondent of the Daily Telegraph talking about the General Synod in York in a very unflattering way, and I think he has every right to do so. He points out that the Archbishop of Canterbury started with a very firm speech refuting what had gone in, in, on, in Canberra with the World Council of Churches and saying what a nonsense it was, how deplorable it was. But by last night and by this morning when the vote comes, everything has changed. With our voice we say something, with our hands we vote differently. Now what is that a mark of? The sinner thinks of itself as being mature. But Paul would say that inability to make up your mind, that inability to say things that are unpopular and stick to them, is not a mark of maturity, it's a mark of immaturity. It's a mark of going with the prevailing wind. And if uh, coloured speakers and synod arise to say that they believe in the World Council of Churches, then immediately we lose our nerve and everybody retreats from what they've said. So immaturity is not something that we can label as simply Corinthian. It is very commonplace today. It's one of the marks of some of the older churches today that they seem to have lost their nerve. They don't want, it seems, to speak plainly about what God has taught if we are not firm about what God has said, both in belief and behavior, then obviously we're going back to childhood. Now the third thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is in verse 12. 
And I suppose this is even plainer, isn't it, as a mark of his restraint upon this Corinthian fanaticism. Paul says in verse 12 that neither the Corinthians nor Paul would attain full knowledge in this age. What is so interesting about verse 12 is that we get this we pronoun. Paul now associates himself with the Corinthians. Remember who he is. They are baby Christians. The Corinthian church was founded only four to five years ago from when he is writing. Uh, Whereas he has been an apostle now for some years, he is given by God knowledge to give to the church that remains the knowledge that we steer by. So he is quite different from them. And yet now, you see, he associates himself with them. And he says, I, an apostle, and you very young Christians, both of us are in the same boat that at the moment we see in a mirror dimly, or literally, as the language says, as in an enigma. Now that means that Paul believed that we Christians ought to know what has been clearly revealed and there is enough clearly revealed to keep us going year after year on Tuesdays, isn't there? We ought to rejoice in the knowledge that the Word made flesh has brought to us, that Christian salvation has brought to us, that the Bible has brought to us. We ought to be quite clear about that knowledge and rejoice in it. But Christians are not know-alls. We know that there are a great many things we don't know, a great many things that are still in an enigma. We oughtn't to go around giving the impression that because we know the Lord and know the forgiveness of our sins, therefore we know all the answers to all the questions that come to our friends and neighbors. We shall often be stumped by problems of providence and suffering, for example. And Paul says quite frankly here that God has not told us everything. He's not revealed the answers to all our questions. There'll have to be a great questionnaire in heaven, and we shall have to wait for it. Now, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, and the mirrors of those days were not pleasant plate glasses today, but they were something like your shiniest saucepan at home. But then, he says, face to face, now I know in part, not in fullness, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. Now, that is very striking, you see. What are you saying there in that last phrase is that full understanding that heaven has of you, just take that in, you don't even know yourself, do you? The older we grow, the more of an enigma we are to ourselves, aren't we? What a mixed up person most of, it, most of us find ourselves to be. We don't even know our own motives. We don't even know really what's deep down within ourselves half the time. But God fully understands us now. It's an awesome thought, isn't it? That is heavenly knowledge. That is the knowledge that only God can have. But you see the wonderful promise there is that that one day will be our knowledge. We shall fully understand what life is about, what we were, what God was doing, his marvelous purposes. We shall understand them all. It'll take eternity to trace them all out. And we shall be full of praise as we understand all the things that God has done. But at the moment, we're often in the dark. It's often dim. It's often partial. Therefore, this Corinthian claim to have full gnosis, full knowledge, to understand all mysteries, you see. He said that right at the beginning, verse 2. They were claiming to understand all mysteries. That is a false claim. 
So Paul is answering the boastfulness and the superiority of the Christians in Corinth. It's not altogether out of date, which is why we're studying it now. And I'd like you to look at the last page as we close for some possible and practical applications of what we've been learning from these three verses, four verses. First, surely, we ought all of us to be anxious. Once we are born again, of course, you can't grow up until you have new life. You have to start by being born again. But when we've been born again into newness of life, then we ought to be anxious to grow up spiritually. Look across to chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be babes in evil, but in thinking be men. Be mature. I love that. I just love that verse. It was given to me when I was a very young convert. And I've tried to steer by it. Will you notice that in evil we're to be babies? I've sometimes been told at clergy conferences that I need to go to all the most way-out films and read all the most way-out novels in order that I may know all the most way-out evil, in order that I may be able to counsel people. I honestly believe that to be rubbish. I don't need, as a Christian pastor, nor do you as an older Christian, to know all the highways and byways of evil in order to help people who come to us. If we did have to know all these things, our own minds would be wholly polluted. It is better for us to be innocent of many of these things. That was what the Apostle is saying here. It's better for us to be innocent of those things, but not to be innocent of Christian truth. There we ought to be, I use it in the right sense, professionals. We ought to be experts. We ought to be able to know how to take everybody who comes to us to the Word of God and apply the Word of God to their particular needs. We ought to realize what God has to say to them. Now, for that, we have to grow up, don't we? It's no good remaining children living on pap. We've got to eat the full meat of the Christian truth. We've got to know our Bibles. And alas, today in our churches, there is an awful lot of biblical illiteracy. Mind you, we, don't of, we often don't give people the chance. What's your youth work like at home, I wonder? I remember when I was put in charge of a youth work, I determined that at least the young people should have a chance to know. And so we used to have a Friday night in which we learned and it became the most popular night of the week. And sometimes we used to go out to other youth fellowships in the area to uh, witness and uh, testify and so on, and again and again one would find that they were just fooling around for two hours with a short epilogue at the end. Well, you can't grow up on epilogues. You can't grow up if you just fool around. What is your Sunday school like? What are the Bible classes like at home? What, what is the teaching like in the, in the house groups? Are people growing? Are they getting strong meat? If they're not, they won't be ready for the things that are going to come to us in the coming years as our country slips down the slope of neo-paganism. We need a grown-up church. Secondly, be cautious of Christian groups who claim special infallible insights that no other Christians possess. Either they are deceived or deceivers. I was so thankful to meet a young man last week after this main service who has liberated himself from one of these churches where they do claim that unless you belong to them you're not really truly baptized or in Christ. There are no such churches in the world. In Christianity there is nothing new. If somebody comes along preaching something new it is not authentic Christianity. In authentic Christianity, there is nothing hidden. There is nothing under the counter. 
There is nothing that a special group can find for you that nobody else has heard about. Everything is out in the open in the New Testament. There's no mystery. Thirdly, be unimpressed by Christians who claim special enlightenment but decry the use of the mind, of thinking, and of doctrine. Paul constantly upbraids the Corinthians for their ignorance. And we've time just to look back to chapter 6 before we close. Here is a church that gloried in its, quote, knowledge. Uh, I have a friend who, uh, he, he uses inverted commas often when he speaks, and uh, we were in a, a motorway cafe, you know, and he was talking to me, going like this, they boasted in knowledge. I just wondered what the onlookers thought as they kept seeing him doing this, whether we were playing Star Wars or something. Well, the Corinthians boasted in knowledge, all right? And uh, this is what Paul says about them. Verse 2, chapter 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Verse uh, 3. Do you not... Yes. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Well, does your youth fellowship know that at home? Does it? If not, why don't you go and teach it? They need to know. No Christian will remain pure if they don't know that. An ignorant church, a church full of life, the Corinthians. I, I find it hard to make them up. I'm studying at the, the moment for these autumn lectures for clergy. They are an amazing contradiction, but I suppose we all are, aren't we? Full of life, full of zeal, but oh so ignorant, and therefore falling into this trap and that trap, unable to keep on the main road, unable truly to help others, always fumbling over their own feet and falling down, making great claims, but actually profoundly ignorant of the deep things of God. Well, let's pray that we may not be like that. Our Heavenly Father, we are conscious that in so many areas we fail to grow up, and we pray that in our own lives and walk with you we may grow up into Christ and be those on whom others can lean and depend. We pray that our churches may not be infantile, we pray that the young people that many of us represent here may be given the opportunity to know the truth in its fullness. We pray and th we thank you for that knowledge that you have given us and we accept the fact that even so we know only in part. And so we look forward, Heavenly Father, to that great day when the mysteries will be removed. Help us to keep these great balances and to walk wisely with Christ for his name's sake. Amen.